and welcome to another episode of the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Mike Varley. And I'm Jesse Hyatt. And we are doing a Brooklyn walk, the Three Bridges. Or I guess it could be a Brooklyn-Manhattan walk, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah, because the bridges go from Brooklyn into Manhattan and yeah. back. And... The Three Bridges of Lower Manhattan, that is Williamsburg Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, and the Brooklyn Bridge. We have a special guest with us this week. Yeah, we had a really special guest this week. Her name is Laura Peterson. She's a friend of ours who lives in Brooklyn. She's really nice to talk to. She had a lot of really smart and interesting things to say. Laura is not an expert on bridges, as I think she wanted us to point out, but she is an architect and she has her own architecture firm. And there are so many ways to relate the building of bridges to the building and design of buildings. And so, we really enjoyed talking with her about not only her experience in architecture and how she sort of got to where she is now, but also her thoughts on how the three different bridges related to different buildings, both in the city and in the world. And we had a chance to walk over a couple of the bridges together right before we sat down to record the podcast. So we reflected on how it actually felt just moments later after getting off the bridges. That's right. We sat down with her in Brooklyn Bridge Park. This is the second time on the podcast that we've sat down in Brooklyn Bridge Park to do a podcast. So you can hear the helicopters and the Brooklyn or the BQE kind of a din as well. So mm -hmm. put you in that place to let you know where we are. And uh, as Jesse said, we had a wonderful time talking to Laura. We hope you enjoyed this conversation too. And without further ado, let us begin. Laura, we're so happy to have you with us today. It's been really fun. We've been walking around a bit. We have not walked over the Williamsburg Bridge today, but I'm sure you've walked over that yourself. We've walked over the Manhattan Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge, and we're really excited to talk with you. The reason we wanted to have you on, well, there's a couple of reasons. You're our friend. You're fun to talk to. You're easy to talk to. You're smart. And you're, this is our bridge week, and you're an architect. And even though you're not an architect of bridges, you know a lot about structures and making structures. So um, I guess, yeah, can we talk a little bit about how you got into doing architecture and like what you're doing with that these days? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the journey with architecture began in high school because my high school offered like some sort of drafting class and so that was the first time I ever I guess did design an orthographic projection which for me there's obviously that huge difference between that and like painting and doing something that's more free form. Um, after high school I went to art school which was connected to the architecture school at um, the school I went to and uh, one day I wandered up to the third floor where the architecture school was and saw that everyone was doing way more interesting stuff <laughs> than in the art school to be frank. And I felt like the money I was spending on school would be better served to like actually doing things. So um, yeah, I ended up starting out school there. And then when I graduated, I came to, I moved to New York. I like, the economy was crap for, especially like in the architecture um, business in 2009 but like mm -hmm. the I like got an 
in my car and drove to like five different cities and set up like informational interviews and eventually got a job offer through that. Oh, wow. Um, at this firm called KPF, which does these like super towers and airports and like crazy huge structures, um, which is what I sort of started doing when I first, uh, I guess, in like my first like real non-intern job. What would you do in for those, like, were you doing designs or was it like assisting architects or like what would, what was your, what was like the job description in some of those first jobs with the massive structures? Yeah, my job title was designer mm-hmm. or I think they called it designer one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think is just an entry level designer position and they, the first job that they threw me on was a, uh, huge airport in Nanning, China, um, which like the concept design was already done, which basically looks like a giant like crustacean like crab sprawled out. Okay. But like a thousand times the size of that. Um, (laughs) And I like had to basically draw out like and figure out all the details for that whole project with one other person. So I was usually in the office from like 8 a.m. to like 10 p.m. because at night I'd be on these like conference calls with like uh, 20 people with like the engineering and architecture practice on the ground in China uh, coordinating this like crazy airport structure. I had no idea what I was doing and like I had to like literally model the building in this program Um, and it was kind of like wonky the roof (laughs) if you actually like Someone did this like crazy video on YouTube, like a flyover uh-huh. of the building with like this epic music and like the like roof is a little bit like oh. <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of like, I, yeah, anyways. It was like kind of, um, I think the office like w- wasn't gonna make any money on the project. So they just kind of like put me on it and we're like, figure this out. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think me and my partner on that project did the best we could. Yeah. When, that, when, I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say that's like, that's kind of an incredible thing to just be thrown into at like as one of your first jobs to take on this massive thing. Was there, do you remember like your feelings about that? Like, were you intimidated or did you feel, it sounds like if you had like the like gung ho ability to like drive around to different cities and take these interviews and like you really like wanted it right like so do you feel like were you energized by that pressure or was it scary or was it like a little bit of both oh i mean i was totally energized by it by that and also just like being in new york like um you know i grew up in the suburbs in michigan and like i went to college in ann arbor at the university of michigan so it's like coming to New York City, even out of all the cities that I had, like, gone to on my, like, interview road trip, Mm -hmm. it was, like, certainly the one with, like, the most energy, um, and also the one that a lot of other architects I knew landed at, Mm. so, I don't know, all of us had, were, like, kind of thrown into similar situations, and, um, yeah, so it was kind of, like, a thrill, uh, without much kind of contemplation for, like, what I was really working on in, in any real sense. You know what I mean? Because it was like, it's super bizarre to be working on these like giant structures that are gonna, like I've never been to that airport, you know? Right. That are being built on the other side of the world and you're just like like designing it in this like little like box. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really bizarre. Um, 
but yeah, that was the first project there. Um, and now, I mean, it seems like you've gone from, I didn't know that that was where you started in architecture and now you're doing projects that you are more closely related to and that like you do go to. So how, I don't know if I, like, I'd love to hear the whole story of like how you got there, but maybe do you want to say like what you're doing now? And then we can talk about this. I don't know if there's similarities or differences or like what the process was from that massive like structure that you'll never go to or that you haven't been to across yeah. the world to like working more closely. Yeah. Um, I think frankly, the big shift was like moving from working at a corporate architecture firm uh, to starting my own practice. Mm. And so I think obviously with that, you're able to bring all of your own values into what you do. And after working on these super large scale projects in uh, New York and around the world, um, I kind of decided that that wasn't the way to design for people. Um, because often those projects were for clients that I just frankly couldn't align with their values. For example, you know, like, you know, back elevators designed into buildings to bring up prostitutes and so forth like that. Like, oh, wow. those are projects that I actually worked on. Um, and I think that's super common, to be honest, mm -hmm. in these, like, huge developments because you've got people with money and power who are just, like, you know, like, doing whatever they want with that. So, yeah, I think the big shift is really um, starting my practice with my um, friend Peter Yi, who I actually met in undergrad at the University of Michigan in our first architecture studio together. Um, and really kind of uh, with starting the practice, like making the decision that we really want to work with small businesses and local communities and nonprofits because we feel like that through our through building relationships with people, that's more important um, at, to happen at the, like as sort of the core of like design than anything else. Um, it allows you to, uh, figure out I think it's like it it forces you to be more creative too because you're kind of like you don't have like infinite funds or money to kind of just like throw at this crazy huge building but you really kind of have to figure out and be creative and how to like make things happen with um and also you get to like these people are your friends they're like um yeah and like you get to kind of work locally with people you get to work directly with the people building the projects um, so it's like a really different process and I think that's super important in the field and I hope that um, more people start doing that to be honest yeah do you feel like you like when you're working with a smaller scale project and it's something that you have like more connection to do you feel like also the person that is hiring you has more connection to it is that I might just be making that up but it seems like that would be the case do you feel like like your clients are they like more involved in sort of the smaller details or is there like an excitement level that they have yeah I think they're more involved in like a personal sense because often the project that we would be working on for them is something that they'll be using mm. like on a daily basis like with their own sort of work or, or something like that um, and so I think they're more 
invest in it as well for that reason, but also because like architecture is really expensive and like um, for these sort of like nonprofits and small businesses, it's like a big investment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they're, they're putting a lot of kind of like their, um, their time and money into it in a way that like, you know, if you're doing it, if you're doing a project for like Jack Ma of Alibaba to do some like big, like super tower, sorry that I, um, but uh, <laughs> it's different because like, you know, to, I think that for someone to do like a legacy project is different than like to do, um, to expand like their gardening space at mm -hmm. their like uh, urban farm, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, and I think that the people, I think that the owners are more invested in it too because um, they're usually tied to a community that they really care about, that it's going, the project will serve. So that's part of it. One of the things that has always, somewhere between intimidated me or always been a part of my thought process when it comes to the idea of constructing buildings or just objects is the level of precision that's required at, at, at your place in the process. How do you already have to be that, that level, bring that level of precision to the thought or does it, uh, does that get hammered out further along the line? Yeah, like, so, like, um, you definitely, the way that, like, typically, like, the design of an architecture project works is you sort of start at, like, a concept level. So perhaps it lives more as an image or, like, a massing or something. Um, and then as the project develops, you start to figure out all of these little details. Um, and the final goal from, like, the the architect side and I think it's one of the most important and undervalued parts of what architects do is actually like the construction documents because ultimately that is going to communicate like how the project will be built mm. but with that said like architects are in no way experts about construction and reality and like contractors and the people who actually build things know way more about that and so there's sort of this like process that happens through construction where um, through like kind of communicating with like the um, the people who actually build the buildings, like changes happen and like, um, yeah. And so I, you, that's like a whole learning process. And honestly, like every project is super different because every project usually like just, um, you know, is a different site. So like, you know, the ground is different or the materials are different and so mm. forth. So, um, yeah, and I also want to mention that, like, the construction documents is not just, like, the work of the architect, but often with more complex projects, um, obviously there's, like, the engineers and the other kind of right. team members who really kind of... So the architect's role is really kind of to um, take all of that information from coming from the client and then also, um, you know, come up with the design, but then kind of coordinate all this different stuff into, like, a set of instructions. And then to continue that communication with the contractor as a as the project gets built so there's a lot of collaboration then you like maybe start the conceptual design but then once you start to get input from people that know more about the structural process there's like collaboration like it does it kind of like start like cycle back and forth like 
you might make something and then the engineer might say like that's gonna fall down you have to do this and you're like well that's ugly so like we're gonna fix it like is it that kind of yeah totally um that happens all the time yeah that's happening as we speak with one of our projects so. oh really that's oh what, yeah it's yeah like, you mentioned you were doing construction documents right now is that what that process entails yeah it's like honestly that the last sort of phase I guess is really figuring out how to get it built and um it's funny that like there's all these other kind of like phases that lead up to that um that are like all these other decisions that you have to make um to finally kind of set the project in place and actually um but yeah it's it's great like I love working with other like I guess like usually call them consultants but they really mm. are a part of your team and it's like you uh you learn so much from them, from them and that's the most fun part about architecture for me is like being able to work with all these different people and to actually see something get built it's pretty cool so you know may, taking a bridge as an example but also maybe like a medium to large size building and maybe this all goes all the way down to small size projects as well i i really don't know but if we were to say like the the, what the top level team looks like on any given project. So like for instance, just to use video games as an example, like there'd be a tech director, design director, an art director, a, you know, a director, head of production or something like that. And as far as I can gather from researching the bridges, there's at least an architect and an engineer. And then I guess the client would be city slash the head of the government, you know? Like what, uh, are there other roles uh, in addition to engineer or, I guess, architect, contractor, like what what kind of would be the high level roles? Yeah, um, I guess I'll take like Hudson Yards as an example because I didn't work on that team at KPF, but um, I kind of like saw the team from the outside and I think it's a complex project that we all know about. Um, KPF, the building that they did at Hudson Yards, it looks like this like ice, uh, berg that washed up from like some other foreign planet uh -huh. <laughs> Manhattan um, super complex project probably 20 person team uh, for like 12 years wow. and part of the reason is because like all of the engineering that went in just to building the base over uh, the rail yards that was there to build then all these towers on top takes an immense amount of engineering and coordination um i don't know much as like as much about those like crazy civil engineering projects and like that hierarchy i guess but within like the office um in that one building there's like the partner that kind of is like the partner that makes like all the big design decisions and kind of like you know walks into the room every maybe week and just is kind of like overseeing that mm. everything is going well um might like that's so like cliche but might literally look at like a sketch like a drawing on the wall and just like draw a line over it <laughs> to show like the new angle of like the glacier um <laughs> it's ridiculous right. and that's like maybe the design partner there's then like the partner that probably at the office is more behind the scenes and is kind of dealing with the client related to funding related to um i don't know just like other more like project management and uh, and contract related stuff. Um, and then the actual project team of like 20 people um, is 
probably half designers uh, working on every aspect of that building and usually it's broken up into different parts. So one person might work on the facade, one person might work on like the interior layouts and making sure that makes sense and like the core, like the coordination of like the core systems and all of like the, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the building core. So like coordinating all of that. Um, but then there's like the project manager who I guess is basically just keeping everything on schedule and making sure decisions are ma being made. And um, yeah, I guess like the bigger the project, like um, the more roles are created and the more duplication of the type of role. Um, but then in a small project, like if you're building like a garage, but like a cool garage uh -huh. where you needed, like where you wanted to hire an architect, like, um, maybe that would happen at like my office or something. It's like, right. that would be Peter and I taking on like every role of that. So um, project management, design, all the contract stuff, uh, making sure that like you're getting it permitted. Um, then all like just the general kind of running the business stuff too. So yeah. Yeah. That must take a lot of I guess when you're in a bigger team and you're working on a bigger project, the purpose of having everyone have a different role is so that, like even as cliche as that is, that the designer comes in and is like, this is the angle of the glacier. It is like, that's his only thing that he has to think about. Or I'm assuming it's right. a B. I'm yeah. saying that's, but <laughs> that's the only thing that that person has to think about is like, okay, all of you other people are like focusing on these other things and the glacier is slanting. This yeah. is our angle. <laughs> but if you're doing all those things at once, that must take the ability to like focus on each thing, like, like only use a chunk of your brain at a time while all the other gears are still spinning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like, that sounds like a lot, but I guess it also allows you to learn, like you said, like learn different aspects of it and sort of do you yeah like work from a more holistic standpoint maybe like you actually understand the whole thing and can can communicate the whole process to whoever you're speaking to or understand like I think that's I just think that's really cool that as the designer you might also understand like the very small mechanic of how something was created yeah yeah totally I think um I think, you know, reflecting on the question earlier about, I guess, the the changes in what I've been doing in architecture, I think ultimately it ties back to that being in an office on a 20-person team in Hudson Yards, you're actually much more isolated. Like, there's no need for you if you're working on, um, like, a certain aspect of the building to talk to any other kind of anyone else about any of the other parts of the buildings necessarily so right um and there's like this kind of detachment then from like all the other people involved not even in the architecture firm who are working on it not to mention the people that will like build it and um the power dynamics of like you know the people that like developed it like all of that's kind of hidden from you and i um and it's intentional for sure but yeah i just uh I don't think that, um, and you're right about the partner, like the partners at KPF are mostly white men. So it's like, there's all these things that 
were going on and seeing how Hudson Yards was built and all these other projects that definitely I felt I feel like influenced me in terms of like where I am today and I would never go back to like a corporate office after seeing kind of like the practice and negligence and like I mean I don't think it's like intentional negligence but like it's definitely like people have had to like turn off a part of their brain to not think about the realities of like of these things and how they get built so um, it's just not something I, I could do anymore, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I, I mean, this actually might be a good segue into talking about the bridges because I think how else do massive structures get built without other than having so many people involved? And, and politics. And politics and having to turn your brain off to certain things because you can't possibly take in everything that's going on or foresee every issue that might arise. Um, and I said this was a good segue to the bridges, but I'm like, how do we actually get there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking in particular, if I can just dive in, if that's okay, with you guys. Um, I'm thinking in particular one thing that as we were learning about these bridges that was really fascinating to me was the original construction of the Brooklyn Bridge and how dangerous it was, but how there were so many people involved and each person had like one very specific role and there were just like so many unknowns. So for example, those, the structure of like how it actually stands and how that had to be a tube that suctioned out the water and made it only air and then people would climb down there and dig and just like in the dark and that was all they were thinking about while someone else was probably thinking about like how do we get this tube to be there and then they didn't even think ahead to like oh there's weird air pressure and yeah, they didn't know. They didn't know. It was like the first time ever, or probably I assume one of the first times like ever having that particular medical issue. What's it called? Uh, the bends. The bends. Right. Is what they were calling it, but it's like decompression sickness. Decompression. Yeah. Which yeah, I was thinking about that a lot as well. Uh, that I'm not sure. I mean, it's probably hard to make this statement definitively, but I don't know if there will ever be another type of mysterious sickness like that that will occur on Earth. You know, like, as we go into space exploration, probably there will be things that we don't understand about that. But, like, yeah, how many more things can we possibly be mysteriously ill from? Yeah, I mean, even the, like, pandemic that we're currently living through, at first... It was, I mean, for the first three to six months, there were all these questions in it. There's still a lot that we're learning, but it's like we have so much understanding about, like, in general, how a virus works and something like that. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, back in the day, there were, there was like, it was like constantly people were like, oh, I don't know. Why I'm, <laughs> everyone that's doing this thing seems to be getting sick. Uh, I guess it's because of that thing, but there was like no knowledge around, like, what particular part of that thing was the problem. Yeah. I think it was called caisson sickness at the time because right. people were going under, under to the caissons that support the bridge and coming up and being sick. 
yeah. anywhere from headaches to paralysis to death. And it was right. occurring in, there was a bridge that was going up simultaneously in St. Louis that was using the same philosophies for how to embed things into, uh, and safely into the water. And they, it was happening in both areas. And they were able to identify that, a doctor was able to identify it and recognize that decompression was necessary, but they were being, they weren't being cautious enough. The amount of decompression time was in the minutes when it, I guess it should have been hours or something. Yeah. Uh, so, but before, yeah, before we continue on, and I have a bunch of notes for history stuff, we cribbed all of this. All three of us uh, listened to the Bowery Boys podcasts on the subject. So, if you're not familiar with the Bowery Boys podcasts and you're listening to this and you're interested in New York history, that is the gold standard, the grandfather <laughs> of uh, podcasts on the subject of New York history. So it was uh, yeah. it was very easy to uh, get some some really great primer from that. The uh, the Brooklyn Bridge itself was the first of uh, the three bridges to be that we're going over today to be built. It was the second uh, of the quote unquote great bridges in the city. The first being High Bridge, which we covered uh, a couple weeks back. Yeah, which actually, it was funny um, when we were emailing before and you said that your favorite type of bridge is the type of bridge that carries water over water. And that's what the High Bridge was. It that's was, right. It carried the Croton Aqueduct. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's a very like funny, <laughs> it's almost like, why are you bringing that water when you have this water? But of course there's a reason, because that water is drinkable and this water is not, or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, of course these bridges that we have been walking over in this route never carried water. They always carried people. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me was how like, like what a big deal it was at the time, how, and just thinking about like how many times I've walked over these bridges and just taken them for granted. Like I've never worried about them collapsing, even though I am afraid of heights and I am actually kind of afraid of bridges in general, but I know that's like a silly fear. Um, I've never been worried about them actually collapsing. I've never thought like, oh, I'm so grateful that this bridge is here so I don't have to take a ferry. Like it's just, I just, it just is what it is. And thinking about like what the city was at the time, um, it's just so, it's just such a like different experience now. Um, and yeah, and like what an undertaking it was to be, I just have like a whole new appreciation for the Brooklyn Bridge in particular. I think that they, this was like such a large span to cross. It was all this new engineering. It like changed the whole dynamic of the city. It's potentially like combined the boroughs into one city. Um, and now it just is like where people go to take some like cute pictures. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's crazy how much like, um, when you think about like the points that they choose for a connection and then I'm sure if you looked at like a map of the city of New York and how it changed over time, like especially right after the bridges were connected, it, I think that would be a really like 
interesting study because it would reveal a lot of things that ha like are the way they are without the bridges would have never happened um but like for me that's more clear in a city like detroit just because i'm more familiar with it just seeing like the overlay of all like the uh infrastructural grids over time and how much that's like created divisions and so forth in certain neighborhoods like obviously a neighborhood that is really close to a, a bridge access point um is going to do really well because you're benefiting from like all of like the travel and so forth that happens um and obviously you're benefiting from like the direct connection and i think that's super interesting to think about in new york because i know that is also like a parallel conversation with the subway and so forth and like where money goes and for development in general for these like big infrastructural projects in the city and yeah it was interesting for me to hear in the podcast that even like the uh the bowery boys podcast on the brooklyn bridge that even like at that time there were very like particular power dynamics that had to exist in order to build something this massive so that was kind of yeah, yeah. well that i mean they talked about it being an ambition for a number of years but it being held up by the ferry interests, which were very powerful at the time, even though ferries don't necessarily seem like a powerful thing, you know, in contemporary time. And what was ironic, and I don't want, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when they get to the Manhattan Bridge, there were some design ideas for that that didn't involve coil wire, uh, and they were upheld or, or they were delayed by Roebling's wire company. So it really just goes to show like whoever's on bottom could be on top and top and on bottom at any given era in history. You know, once you once you become the standard, uh, there's a lot of power, a lot of responsibility that's involved as a consequence, you know. But the uh, the Brooklyn Bridge itself, uh, I'll just read off some facts because I find them interesting. Okay. It went through uh, the Roebling family, uh, which I think is important to note, it was uh, father, son, and then uh, wife of son, uh, starting with uh, John Roebling, who uh, I really, I really liked. I wanted to, uh, or I want to read more about the fact that he built a utopian community for a while. I don't yeah. know if you know anything about that. I don't. But I know I didn't. I didn't look into it. But yeah, it was um, in Pennsylvania, right? In like. Uh, was it Shanksville or something? I don't you know if that was the name of the utopian community. But... Oh, no, I think it was near like a town called... Oh, okay, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's, it sounds great. I'm, yeah. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, and he was, he was the inventor of the steel wire that came to be the underpinning for many years worth of bridges, decades worth of bridges. And he uh, came up with the plans and they were approved after many years of politicking and around it and then just before they were about to start uh he his foot was crushed by a ferry that or, or rather the ferry had knocked over something that landed on his right. foot he contracted gangrene as a consequence even though they amputated it, it did not succeed and his son washington roebling was the one that stepped in well yeah because he died yeah like he, he died. died a month later which even that like i can't understand how that would happen like if, if I think about being the designer for a bridge and like 
I'm standing here and then something falls on me and I die a month later. Like that is just so incomprehensible in like today's Right. It tells world. you how different it is today in terms of just like the medical knowledge and capabilities. Yeah. yeah. And seemingly inauspicious for a project, you know, that mm. that that would almost seem like it might drag the momentum out of it right away, but instead it persisted, you know? Yeah. And and so Washington took over and he suffered from decompression sickness. He ended up getting the bends as well uh, as a consequence of supervising what was going on during the construction of the caissons, particularly the uh, Manhattan caisson. Mm-hmm. And to I guess take half a step back as far as what caissons are, and I'm now doing a copy of a copy as far as explaining these things, but the analogy used is basically imagining taking a glass of water in a full sink and then putting the glass down directly into the water and how there's then a pocket of air that is there. And the idea is that they can operate in the construction of this by I, I think is it removing the sediment or adding things to it no, in it's order like to digging so that it'll fall. Yeah, it slowly down. falls lower and lower yeah. until yeah. it's in the position they want. Yeah, which and like th- now I'm sure we must just have some kind of machine that, that does would that. like do some sort of like clunk 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 or yeah. like something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, so yeah, go on. Imagining them taking that case on and trying to sink it from the boat in the right place because it was just like one piece. It wasn't constructed. Like they constructed it offsite and then transported it. Right. Yeah. Is like, I want to see like a film of that. I can <laughs> just like imagine this like kind of clown show of them yeah. trying to get it in there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there must have been some kind of like crazy police system or, right? I don't. I didn't read anything about actually how that happened, but yeah. I would assume yeah. <laughs> just like a lot of men probably like struggling. Yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah, probably would have been a site that really defied contemporary logic, you know? It kind of, it makes me think of, uh, I don't know if either of you have seen the rockets that SpaceX is using. Yeah. Where they're able to now land them after they've used them for propulsion purposes. And it looks like a video in reverse or something. Like, you know, like all it's like it's landing perfectly on there to be reused when it maybe they just switch the film and it's actually taking off. I don't right. know. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me how <laughs> that even happens. Yeah. And especially because they look like those weird foam rockets that like you could play with as a kid that would just be like, like, yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's like no way that thing would be like straight up and straight back yeah. down. And it, I mean, there's a decent chance, provided we can survive as a species for the next hundred years, that that will become a commonplace site that people will, won't question it. You know? Right. Um, so yeah, so Washington gets the bends, unfortunately, and he goes to his uh, retires to his home and either it's either Columbia Heights or, or, or Brooklyn Heights. It's it's unclear in the podcast because they reference both. But he observes the remainder of the construction from the window while his wife, uh, Emily Roebling, steps in and handles from what I, I what I understand is basically all of the administrative, basically just the, the nuts and bolts of making this thing happen. 
so she was not acknowledged in her day as being, uh, you know, uh, a prime uh, mover of, uh, of this project, although she was allowed to be the first official person to cross over the bridge while holding a rooster, which was a symbol of good luck at the time. <laughs> yeah, the, um, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, I guess I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, there's, there's this idea that, like, obviously we contend with in contemporary society about, like, what women can and cannot do. And when I was listening to that and learning that she really had a hand in it, I mean, even, like, the passing of the baton was really interesting, thinking about, like, the idea of being an expert. And the first Roebling man clearly like had all this experience and he had developed this wire and it was almost shocking to me that then his son could just step in and take over and then it was even more shocking to me that then his son's wife could just step in and take over but I wonder how much of that has to do with just like being in proximity to something that's going on and then how much of it is also just like speaks to like general human capability that if you're given a task you'll perform yeah i'm not sure i i do think that i mean he did he, he didn't die so there was some knowledge share that she was able to benefit from and maybe there was there had to have been some sort of motivator to fulfill both john's vision and then to complete washington's uh you know the all the effort that he gave in order to fulfill that you know yeah. I, I think that there is something to be said about, yeah, humans, especially for something like this. I mean, it's it's considered in some of the the writings to be an eighth wonder of the world. You know? Yeah. And yeah. so that I, I do think that inspires something within uh, humans to 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 go the, that extra mile, you know? Yeah. Plus, if like a member of your family is like working on that it's so it must be so close to home i'd imagine um and also just hearing about how uh father roebling uh <laughs> he, like somewhat like he had built bridges before which i actually looked at like the one in philadelphia they're yeah. really beautiful yeah um so it was clearly something that he was moving around and probably his family was too i mean i assume in some ways yeah. with him doing that so. yeah 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 from what i recall washington the son had been already building the projects with his father oh. and he was very young he may have even been he like was, 31 or was he he, he was, was 30, his, i think he was 31 yeah because yeah. i remember hearing that and thinking could i build a bridge <laughs> yeah but i guess it also like the other thing like how you were explaining how the big architecture firms work it's probably kind of similar to that too like this massive structure it's not like father roebling died and son roebling had to like pick up a pitchfork and build the bridge all by himself like obviously there's all these people that are already like on the job doing or well they weren't on the job yet at the time but like everyone kind of has their own skill he didn't have to like learn how to do every single element yeah yeah 
And so there were uh, a number of scandals that were associated with the bridge, which uh, in the Tammany Hall era is not uncommon. And also, I, yeah, all three of these bridges at some point or another suffered from some degree of uh, shenanigans. Mm -hmm. uh, the most interesting scandal associated with this one was the defective wire that is in the bridge today. That they did this, uh, this uh, I guess his name was uh, Hay. His last name was Hay. Was mm. it William Hay? It was definitely Hay was the last name. And he was uh, kind of a snake oil peddler from the get-go. He had, he had done previous projects that were dubious. And what happened was they were making wire, and it was this company that was making the wire, not the Roebling company, because it was a conflict of interest, since the Roebling family was in charge of the project itself. And they were bringing wire to the project that was able to pass the test. And then they were, once they were passed the test, they would swap out that wire for de defective wire. Yeah. And that wire ended up getting built into the bridge. And that might sound like, well, should we panic? You know, is this going to fall at some point? But the nature of how the Roeblings designed the strength of the cabling and the cabling system is that the defective wire was only five times stronger than it needed to be, while the actual wire was six times stronger than it needed to be. Mm. So defective, I guess, is a relative term. Well, it's really interesting to me, like, the, I was just trying to put myself in the shoes of that wire supplier, which <laughs> I just realized rhymes. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's one thing, I mean, I make clothing. So it's one thing to potentially deliver defective clothing, which like, first of all, I would never do. I would like feel so guilty about that, but I wouldn't be possibly killing people with that. I mean, maybe if I was delivering clothing that had like toxic material, but that would be a stretch. But um, but I just like can't imagine being that person that's like trying to pull one over. Like, what what was the benefit of doing that? Saving material costs, I presume. Mm, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I think the other thing was that the Manhattan side caisson is on sand, yeah. yeah. which like I completely forgot about because I had listened to that podcast before and it just blows my mind. And like I couldn't help but think about it when we walked across the bridge earlier today. Uh, it just is a little bit unsettling, but at the same time, somehow between the Brooklyn and the Manhattan, and the Brooklyn feels so much more sturdy mm. even though you're like walking on wood planks <laughs> when we were like halfway through the manhattan bridge i felt like that bridge was like really shaking i don't know if really? it was like it psychologically because it's yeah. so loud like it i mean yeah it, it does uh shake up to eight feet apparently oh my oh, god wow. yeah well it's uh so the manhattan bridge is a suspension bridge right there are all three are oh all three are yeah, yeah. okay i didn't and realize I, that either <laughs> Until I looked it up yesterday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, they're all bridges. Like, it has been really fascinating learning, like, what the different types are and what that means. But I guess with the suspension bridge, there is some, like, give. 
And I guess in building buildings, that has to happen too. Like with, especially the taller they get or the bigger they get, like you have, you don't want it to be so tight that it just like, because yeah. then it'll crack. Yeah. But you also don't want it to be so loose because then it might yeah, completely just wave away. Yeah. That's actually a thing in super tall buildings people who work in them they're often like office towers most of the time yeah uh and you can get sick from just like being on a really tall floor Whoa. that's crazy yeah i wonder if you if, if there was like an office put on the center of the manhattan bridge if the same thing would happen i would want <laughs> that to be, be my office because it looks at the brooklyn bridge <laughs> that's funny because that's a good point i forgot like also, since I don't usually walk on the Manhattan Bridge because it's not a great experience, right. yeah. you forget how delicate like the Brooklyn Bridge looks mm-hmm. yeah. because you're when you're walking like on the on the Brooklyn Bridge, you're like seeing these massive towers, right? And so it feels kind of a lot heavier than it actually is. And so it was cool kind of to see today how how light it actually looks as like a suspension bridge yeah Yeah. and i think that's why people loved it so much like such a big part of it was the aesthetic uh portion right and like all even when we were walking across it today i don't know like there's these circular did you guys notice those the like circular things that are just on the wire like on the suspension wire in maybe four different places there's these like lines that make a circle. I don't know that there's any purpose to that other than that they look nice. They probably serve a purpose. I know to what you're referring. They kind of look like grates that are attached yeah. to the the wire coils. Yeah, I'm not sure what they are. But yeah, I, the, the sight lines and the thing that's unique about that bridge relative to the other two that we'd be talking about is that the walkway is smack dab in the middle of the bridge. So, mm. I think that's just a very powerful experience to be able to see the towers, how you see them, and also the lattice work of wiring in between the towers is this very stunning visual experience. It's so epic. You yeah. have like the cables like on both sides. It's like this soup, you're in the middle, so you have this like symmetry of kind mm-hmm. of, and yeah, so it's way more powerful and I love it. I mean, it certainly feels different during COVID during the mm-hmm. pandemic, just with way less people. So, but I just like, yeah. And the fact that it's wood versus like, it just feels like, uh, it feels sturdy and it feels like really beautiful. I don't know. I love, yeah. Yeah. Well, I said when we were going on it, it's like getting on the cyclone. Like it, it really feels like a piece of Coney Island is up here. Yeah. And uh, how much, I, I mean, it probably wasn't informed you know, Brooklyn Bridge probably did not inform Coney Island's construction, but maybe it did. I don't know. You know, just the fact that there is that somehow a connection in those two areas and how I, I almost do associate Brooklyn, aside from like the oxidized metal, but also that wood plank nature, too, mm. is something that feels really appropriate. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It makes it a little more like human. Like, I, I mean, I hate the term handmade in general because it's like everything's handmade, but, but it does, it like feels a little more connected 
to it, it feels like something that maybe you could be part of as opposed to the steel heaviness that like only really skillful laborers would know how to work with like I know how to hammer a nail into wood like maybe I could have nailed one of these planks down or something it like gives you something to relate to uh, two more historical things I want to call out before we switch to another bridge one uh, that there were 20 people that passed away during the construction of the bridge which oh, yeah. is the most of the three there were deaths on the other bridges but I think in part because this was the first time it ended up being uh, you know a really uh, significant loss of human life as a consequence and then two after the bridge was completed I, I believe a week after uh, a person screamed on the bridge which ended up causing a, a crowd reaction to escape off the bridge because they feared it was collapsing mm -hmm. uh, and during this panic there were 25 injured and 12 killed as well which must have been a horrific experience yeah to to not i mean you're on this new technology it's funny to think of it as that but to not know uh if you could fall or not and and then to be caught up even if you thought maybe you know that's preposterous it was just one person screaming yeah to be to be caught up in the swell of people uh, must have been terrifying i also wonder what happened to that one person that screamed I mean, I mean, maybe they genuinely thought the bridge was going to collapse, you know, in yeah. their, their mind. Oh, I mean afterwards. Uh, like, were they, like, punished or did they just punish themselves with the guilt of having killed, like, caused a mass panic and, like, 12 people dying? And... Yeah, who knows? I don't know if you would be punished today for something. I guess it would depend like on the circumstance. It's like fire in a movie theater. You know, it, like, it relates to me in that way. It's like creating panic when there's nothing to panic about. Yeah. But back then it was like maybe you thought there was something to panic about. Yeah. So the, the final historical footnote that I want to put on it, uh, following this panic, they wanted to restore confidence in the integrity of the bridge. And as a consequence, they called in P.T. Barnum who was the ultimate showman at this time and age in New York City and uh, maybe America in general. And he had a team of 21 elephants march across the bridge in order to prove the structural integrity, right. which I don't know how that's more than a bunch of people, you know, it, but I guess it's, it's just kind of a, you know, another act. Yeah. That feels like very Coney Island too. Yeah. Like yeah. That era yeah. And stuff. Yeah. I think there was like a giant elephant at Coney Island at one point, similar to the one in uh, in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. there was. Yeah, I think it it might have been one of the structures that burned. I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Coney Island had this history of building these like crazy things. Yeah, there then, are multiple like, fires. fires happening. Yeah. yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's probably another podcast, but I think we yeah. watched it together. Maybe we didn't. I don't There's uh, the like New York Life Channel or something, one of the free channels you get. Uh, goes over. There were like either three or four different amusement parks there we all remember you know the one the guy with the, the crazy face that's on the coney yeah. island brewery but like that was just one of, of multiples and yeah there were a lot of fires because uh light bulbs were all the rage back then um um that so this idea of like <laughs> i just love this idea of people being nervous about something and like 
the the government coming together and being like, you know how we're going to restore faith? We're going to bring in a bunch of elephants. We're going to march them across. But like it kind of the way things were done. I also watched a little clip of the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. And it was amazing to see. It was just so many people. It was also all men and they were all wearing suits and they were all like so excited, like rushing to the bridge. And then like there was a parade, it was like a parade across and there were fireworks and it just, it feels like so, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's like problematic things we could get into, but it feels like so innocent in a way that like everyone in New York was like gathering together to march across this new structure that had been built to like connect New York to Brooklyn. And I don't know, I'm, I was actually really trying to think um, if there's anything that we like gather for now, like, like what's the last thing that's like gone up that we've like had this like mass excitement about? In New York City or in general? Well, I guess in general. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't... The... In New York, there's lots of stuff. Yeah? I feel like it happens all the time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> just like I'm thinking about the, like, the past 10 years since maybe I also just get more excited about these things because I am an architect and like get excited about these design things. But the High Line, I feel like, is one. Mm-hmm. When that, like especially when the first part opened up, like you had to go there. And it's still, because they kind of opened it up in sequences and then like the crazy like stair thing opened Mm. up, like people, that was like a big event kind of. I feel like also this park too, yeah, like was a kind of a big event, but not in the like ceremony. I'm sure there's like a ceremony, but, but maybe I missed out on that. Yeah. I do think that New York has a lot of ceremonies that are maybe less focused on like the construction of these like epic things i like for example uh like the pride parade uh chinese new year parade and also like all of the protests that like cross the bridges too yeah i feel like is another big kind of ceremonial thing yeah and actually that's that's such a good thing to bring up because it, that is like very related probably having like a mass group of people cross a bridge it maybe honestly might have been like one of the first times that that happened since the bridge opened like during these moments of people gathering for an important cause like when it opened it was just because of excitement about having this like new structure to cross but now it is actually used as a as a passageway to like communicate something as a big group of people too yeah Mm. i hadn't thought about that at all yeah i think these kind of these symbolic spaces and cities become really important for these big events especially for protests like the one in the calatrava terminal in manhattan that i found really inspiring and this was before march was there was a lot of protests going on with like protesting the MTA cost because it's so expensive and inaccessible to a lot of people in the city. And someone used like the, that huge white terminal 
as an opportunity to hang this like giant like um you know f the police but also i related to the mta like that whole protest was related to like the over policing of the mta but also the accessibility issue and i just love seeing those spaces because they are public spaces mm -hmm. being used in that way especially when one like the calatrava is so commoditized you know with the with it being literally a mall i'm just like yes like the city is still like this this is still our space and i think that's i love those reminders of that and it feels especially now so important for these like symbolic things to happen so um in these epic spaces they've become more memorable like in my mind for some reason too when yeah. there's something like when there's like some sort of like spatial thing that is huge that happens or that hosts it yeah yeah well it also gives you like a different i mean perspective in like all the different ways you can use that word i guess um of the space too like if you're walking across just like enjoying yourself kind of just with one a couple people and it's not crowded that's like you're looking around you're seeing like these things but then if you're walking across with like a crowd of a thousand or thousands of people that all have like a message you're probably not like looking up at the structure as much but you're like feeling the energy and it just like gives you a like locks in different memories and different experiences to that space and that structure yeah yeah now moving up north we have the manhattan bridge yes the manhattan bridge i think it is safe to say is the least regarded of these three bridges for most people that i interact with i feel like the brooklyn bridge is solidly in people's hearts and also a noted tourist attraction i I happen to have a soft spot for the Williamsburg Bridge and for reasons we can get to as we encounter it. And the Manhattan Bridge, because it's kind of sandwiched in between the two of them, and because it's not entirely a pleasant experience to walk across, I would say <laughs> it is the least pleasant of the three to walk across. Yeah. Well, you were saying you felt it sway. And yeah. And it's loud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many times did we, like, it was kind of actually an interesting way to have a conversation. By the last time that we had to pause mid-sentence to wait for two trains to go by, I, I was thinking to myself during that pause, there is this, like, maybe there's some interesting, like, meditation exercise you could do while walking over that and having a conversation where, like, the distance of the train passing gives you time to think about what you're saying and like gather your thoughts and you just get enough time to get out one thing before another train passes and you respond or it could be used but <laughs> it does feel more just like utilitarian i am happy that the pedestrian walkway faces the brooklyn bridge because you've got that it it offers to give this bridge some respect <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll say the positives in my mind is the views I mean that's true with any bridge like in New York because as soon as you cross and are at that kind of peak point between Manhattan and Brooklyn you've got these like you realize oh my gosh we're a city of water first mm. of all which is something yeah. you don't realize like walking around every day I guess it depends on where you live in the city mm. but then you also kind of for me, like walking from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you get these kind of epic views of Chinatown, uh -huh. which are really great, especially the ones that are like 
you know, lo looking straight down the streets and stuff. I love that part of the bridge. Yeah. But otherwise, like, the structure is just not that beautiful. And like, it feels, it's very much a bridge that primarily is to like, for vehicular and train traffic. Yeah. 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 And that's honestly, that's what I utilize it for the most. Like, I'm sure I've driven across the Manhattan Bridge many more times than I've walked it. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, I've had an appreciation for the coloring of it that I hadn't had prior to this week. Mm -hmm. I like the, the white and blue uh, mm -hmm. as observing it from the Brooklyn Bridge. I thought that's nice. Yeah. It almost to me feels very like elementary. Like yeah. the color, like it feels like Sesame Street made it or something. <laughs> it's like, what color is this bridge? Well, it's blue. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not like any particular blue. It's just like blue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, I don't know, there's something actually kind of sweet about that, that it like, I guess it got a lot of criticism at the time that it was built. But I, in a way, I kind of actually, I don't know. I kind of like that it's just like a bridge that's a bridge. Like the Brook like how are you going to compete with the Brooklyn Bridge? It's like <laughs> I'm next to the Brooklyn Bridge and I'm just being I'm just a bridge. Like I'm not trying to be beautiful. Like Brooklyn Bridge has that covered. I'm yeah. just like getting people across. Yeah. Well, to give some historical perspective, uh, it was the f had multiple designers, which can kind of complicate why it mm -hmm. looks how it does. It was first designed by Leffert Leffert's Buck which is not a double take, that is his name. And I wondered if Leffert's Gardens, there must be some connection there, right? Oh, I, maybe. I don't know for sure, but uh, he was doing this bridge as well as the Queensboro Bridge, which is well regarded as a, a very beautiful bridge. We went over that the week, two weeks prior. And he uh, was replaced by Gustav Lindenhall, because uh, Lefferts Lefferts Buck was also doing the Williamsburg Bridge, which turned out everybody thought was very ugly at the time. Yeah. And so it was a decision to remove him to try and salvage it and get back or do kind of something that was more akin to the city beautiful movement that was happening at that time, which I know very little about. I don't know if you happen to know anything about it. I'll just throw it out there and people can research it further yeah. if they want on their own. But uh, Lindenthal took over and he wanted to do, you were talking about having an office on top of the Manhattan Bridge, right? He wanted to do four, not only 14 lanes of railroads, which is insane. This, right. we, we just went over there's four and it was impossible. <laughs> but uh, he wanted to have auditoriums inside the towers, which how would do they do they have soundproofing technology that i was not familiar with like i don't understand how you could do anything in they there had like silent that. trains yeah i don't know <laughs> they did uh, it so that <laughs> that idea was shot down but then he uh tried to propose the i-bar design which i briefly referenced earlier that was also refused because the wire rope companies of roebling had a monopoly on bridge building in the city at the time so all of this to say is there was an, another person that took over from Lindenthal, George Best, who then didn't know anything about bridge building. Uh, and he appointed this guy, Leon Moisif, who is most famously known for the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which fell, collapsed, and was a tragedy. Uh, wow. There was, yeah. there, all of this is to say, 
that there was just a messy, very political bridge, was going back and forth under the control of Tammany Hall as reforming mayors, and then Tammany Hall mayors came in and out. Mayor terms were only two years back then, so it was hard to pick on any one direction. And as a consequence, I think maybe that's why we get this bridge that uh, doesn't have quite the same drive of personality as what you might call the Roebling family bridge, I guess, right. you know? Yeah, well, I wonder, Laura, do you have any, did you have any thoughts like, part of the Manhattan Bridge was that they had it already designed and it was already being constructed, right? When they asked someone to come in and like make it nicer looking. And I wonder like just from, I think you're, like, you're thinking of the Williamsburg Bridge, I think. But oh, I think I the same, I mean, the idea is that, I think the premise is kind of the same, that there are multiple cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, but also just thinking about like, like you were, when you were talking about the airport that you worked on like there was already a concept like that's where it started so I just it just sounded like such a difficult task to be given to like you already have this bridge designed and now like we want to just like have another designer come in and another designer come in and like come on top of that but it's like I, I kind of wonder like those things probably have to happen early on right like a lot of the aesthetic decisions yeah there's another famous one, actually, that we passed by earlier today is the stadium. Oh. Which is, what is the name of that the stadium? The Barclays Center? Yeah, Barclays Center. <laughs> Forgot, it's named after that company. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that stadium was a really, really boring stadium. And I believe, like, shop architects, they became pretty famous for doing the redesign, which was essentially taking a normal stadium and just cladding it with that crazy like thing right but yeah. I, but i don't think that every sort of project when you're kind of handed this design problem like meaning all this money and effort and perhaps construction has already started on that so how much can you really change right yeah uh, so i think they actually did a pretty good job for that and my favorite part of sorry to like yeah, defer, but my favorite okay. part about the barclays is like that <laughs> plaza that it ended up creating which wasn't yeah. in the original design or didn't have that like crazy like suspended circle over it which right. totally I thought that stadium was like ugly when it was first built and stuff but honestly it, it made a place mm -hmm. and um, yeah I think that's important for cities so yeah. And, yeah and played a role in the recent protests this year too yeah, yeah. When you talk about marking occasions for things with space yeah yeah so that I I mean that bridge, I guess one final point we should call out, the entryway to the bridge of the Manhattan Bridge on both sides. So there's the the Manhattan Bridge entrance, which is this like really city beautiful thing, Baroque. And it was designed by the same firm, uh, Carrere and Hastings, that did the Brooklyn Public, or not the Brooklyn, the New York Public Library. Oh. Yeah. So that is quite a sight to behold. Yeah, and that then, is really beautiful. And that's also another plaza which is like really interesting because it's between lanes of traffic, but there's so much space to just like stand there and look at the bridge, I guess. Yeah. Like, <laughs> which is what we did earlier. That plaza yeah. needs some love. Yeah. Yeah. It, it needs really like does. A, like 2000s kind of, I don't know, not like totally redoing it, but it definitely needs some like energy or some sort of event to happen to kind of re it's not a very hospitable place. There's just traffic coming in and out of it. I went there earlier this week and I asked a traffic 
officer if I could even go there. Like it, it, it was like, it just seemed like it was off limits in some respect. And he was like, mm -hmm. no, it's fine. You can go there. Just don't go on the road. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That whole area is all for vehicular traffic. Yeah. yeah. And so there was uh, previously a comparable entrance on the Brooklyn side. And I actually, I, I misinformed us earlier today. We went and saw what was a replica, not the actual statues. Oh. Yeah, the actual, so there was uh, statues on the Brooklyn side that were representative of Manhattan and Brooklyn in kind of a female classical form. And I only read half the article and got excited about it. And it turns out that the original big statues are in fact in front of the Brooklyn Museum, oh. as I originally thought. And then those two statues that are, there are these now two rotating statues on die, diocese, diocese? Dioceses? No. That's something else. Pedestals, two rotating pedestals <laughs> that are close to the entrance of the Brooklyn side of the Manhattan Bridge. Of course, uh, once I guess there was too much traffic to support having a beautiful entrance anymore. And those were done by an artist in 2017. Oh. And they rotate near the entrance. They are miniature replicas of the statues that <laughs> reside in the Brooklyn Museum. And they light up at night. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. So tacky. Yeah, I love exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, exactly. So I do definitely have to go check out the, the Brooklyn ones as well. The ones at the Brooklyn Museum as well. Yeah. But uh, that's, I guess that's, that's all there is to say for now about the Manhattan one. So we can move on to the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah. All right. Um, I, in researching the Williamsburg Bridge, I was trying to find videos about it, and I stumbled down this rabbit hole of people climbing the Williamsburg Bridge. Have you ever seen this or heard of people doing this? I've heard of people doing it with the Brooklyn Bridge as oh, well. Oh, really? Because you can get onto the wires. It's like... It's terrifying to me. It's so, <laughs> and like, so there's all, there's like so many videos of people that go onto the Williamsburg Bridge. And I guess if you go into the center, you like climb up onto the beams and they cross over and you like can climb all the way up and then sit at the top and see the city. And I mean, it looks beautiful, but like <laughs> it's beautiful not on the top, like it's beautiful in the middle too. Um, and then they like descend down the, suspension wire and I don't uh I don't know it's this just like it's <laughs> I feel like like how how do they get down the so there's a pole there's like a pole you can walk down and then there's the wires that are next to the pole and it's wow. actually what pe what the like workers would use like people that were going up to fix the bridge that's how they would get down as well but they would be in safety gear and like strapped on and they wouldn't be carrying like a camera rig <laughs> and it would maybe be like there'd be people aware and like help like watching them they wouldn't it wouldn't be like in the cover of night um but yeah this is just i mean this is just an aside and something that i really like got interested in and how like just thinking about how like this structure it's made it's like made for a specific use and then we like judge it by all sorts of like 
aesthetic beauty and like how much traffic is on it and like practical things but then it also things just like become like whatever people want them to be it just like becomes a <laughs> playground yeah yeah i i guess if it's there you want to climb it there are always people that want to do that <laughs> it takes a certain type of constitution or like a missing part of your brain i don't know that for me it, it just i would instantly like not want to go more than 10 steps up i don't think i could yeah i can't even like when we go hiking and there's a fire tower i like i physically freeze <laughs> yeah I used to love going into abandoned buildings and exploring them and often like those would be like, you know, missing floors and stuff like that. It was totally a thing. I felt like my brain wasn't missing, but it was totally a thing where I just like, you know, it was like an alternative to like getting wasted. It was like, mm. you know, breaking into yeah. a property and like actually kind of exploring it and stuff. It's I like a, it that. must be an adrenaline thing totally. too. Totally. Yeah. 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 And I bet when you're done you probably feel powerful like i oh, got yeah. away with that i'm still alive i'm invincible like it probably gives you like a real big yeah i can fly right <laughs> me, at least i try. believe i can fly yeah. Yeah. i think i can fly <laughs> yeah. so for this bridge it was opened in 1903 the middle of the three bridges that we're talking about today it was the first bridge completed uh, as New York was a fully incorporated city, I guess if you want to call it that, with uh, all the boroughs joined together. It connected the tenement side of the Lower East Side to the industrial residential side of Williamsburg, which caused some strife once it was completed as people from the Lower East Side sought homes on the other side of the bridge, which was part of the city's design, it would seem, but of course, uh, people on the other side, uh, particularly those that had money, were not happy with the fact that people with less incomes were moving into their neighborhood, which is, if it sounds familiar, that's because that's the history of humanity, I guess. People don't like to uh, share, you know? And so the, an interesting thing that I learned from the, the podcast was that Williamsburg was separate from Brooklyn until only 20 years prior to the bridge, you know, it was the 1860s or 1870s, I think, was when it was incorporated into Brooklyn. And that was kind of the case for several sections of Brooklyn, that they all were independent entities. And consolidation both, although consolidation with Brooklyn had happened by the time the bridge was built, there was this real acceleration that came with the Brooklyn Bridge of, I think, everybody thinking, like, let's get it all together as in one form. And so that was, Williamsburg was called the Eastern District. Mm. And it was a separate thing entirely from where we are now, the area we are now. And so they were clamoring for their own bridge because there was a lot of economic incentive to get a bridge uh, over to that area. And that is how, that is how the bridge, if you ever wondered why the bridges are where they are, it's because there was kind of a separate identity while we think today that there is all one identity mm. um, that was motivating that. And in fact, one of some of the investors in that area included Charles Pfizer, which is super relevant to today's because oh, yeah. Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, uh, yeah. our, our current vaccine friends, yeah. <laughs> were uh, German uh, investors in the Williamsburg area. So, If it weren't for the Williamsburg Bridge, maybe we'd still be waiting for a vaccine. Maybe. 
or <laughs> I think that's the most logical connection. Yeah. And as far as the appearance of it, I you know, I've always noticed that it was, you know, considered a an ugly bridge at the day. And it looked like a railroad bridge. I mean, it, and honestly, if you think about it objectively, it looks like something you might see in the country somewhere, just spanning a space and not particular, uh, you know, uh, aesthetic concern. And I never really noticed that the, uh, the bridge also looks like that in the bottom too. Like it, it just goes all the way straight down like it were a, uh, like a transformer tower or mm -hmm. something, you know? And for me, I, I quite like how it looks. I don't, you know, it, 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 it speaks to another type of Brooklyn aesthetic. Like if the Brooklyn Bridge speaks to one type of Brooklyn aesthetic, then the Williamsburg Bridge speaks to another type of aesthetic, you know? I think it's more, I mean, maybe this is related to architecture too, because I think it's maybe more like modern aesthetically than it was at that time. Like I was, I don't know, I was listening to something a little bit ago too about um, the George Washington Bridge, which I think looks kind of similar to the Williamsburg Bridge. And it was saying that when that bridge was being built, they wanted to make it look more like the Brooklyn Bridge, but by then like that kind of thing had fallen out of style and this more like steel structure was what people liked. So I wonder if now we just like, we like that, but at the time maybe it was like too... Too modern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very concerned with the engineering aspect of the bridge and not concerned with the aesthetics at the time. Yeah. But that itself is its own perspective and an aesthetic as a consequence. You know? Yeah. The Eiffel Tower had that same issue when it was first built. Okay. Right, yeah. And I feel like has kind of a similar aesthetic in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that was that was brought up in the podcast as well, that it, it, it was successfully pulled off there, or at least, I yeah. don't know, I mean, I know there were certainly a lot of artists that were on the record at the time as saying that it was like a nightmare. That, that felt, and I, you know, I could imagine that people that are used to one idea of what Paris looks like would think that that was unnecessary. So Eiffel also designed the inner structure of the Statue of Liberty. Oh, oh really? really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, which is actually like if you look at like a section through it, you kind of understand that like there's a similar logic. Also, a really tall thing, essentially that's clad um, in metal. Oh, interesting. Uh, except that because it's like the sort of form of a figure, there is sort of like the logical structure mm -hmm. as yeah. the primary structure. And then there's like this um, substructure that negotiates sort of like the clothing and the body and stuff related to the more logical structure. Huh. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's you can, I mean, I don't know what the current status is, but going inside of the Eiffel Tower is one of the cool, or, or sorry, <laughs> Eiffel Tower is cool. Statue <laughs> of Liberty cooler because you feel like you're kind of inside of this cloak. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I ever actually went into it. We, I definitely like went to the Statue of Liberty on field trips growing up, but I think like it's something I'd be more interested in doing now. As a kid, I was almost like too jaded or something. Right. Like now I would actually be really interested in seeing that. But yeah, I probably would have been more interested in like it's going really to the cool. local H&M or something. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they, they closed it down for a long time after September 11th, oh, but then they yeah. reopened it, I think, 
a few years into when I lived in the city, so maybe mm. in like 2012. But I I want to go again, so we yeah. should do it. Yeah. Yeah. As far as walking the Williamsburg Bridge, the experience of it, the I like it for several reasons. I like it because it's it feels gritty. I love all the graffiti on it. I love the stickers on it. I it it is much more ambience-wise more friendly than the Manhattan Bridge because it's not as loud even though there's trains and it is more friendly than the Brooklyn Bridge in typical times because there's not as many people mm. it's much more a commuter bridge for pedestrians and then the third thing that I like about it if I am understanding the terminology correctly is all the trusses that are on uh, top of the pedestrian and the biking side that create this not the same thing as all the wiring in the Brooklyn Bridge, but kind of another optical illusion of its own. Yeah. Where it there's just you know hundreds of these. I don't know if it's pink or red. Is that am I am I imagining yeah, I it think the right it color? Pink. Is yeah. it pink? Okay. But I think it maybe is red faded. But yeah, I, I, don't, I yeah, think yeah. of it as a pink bridge. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, and uh, just to be able to look down the entire length and see hundreds of these, or just a. a a level that the brain can't comprehend anymore that it feels like it might as well be forever the mm. length that you can see it yeah it uh yeah it's a really it it feels like some sort of teleportation tube to <laughs> in between the boroughs and and i rem i i don't recall when i first traversed the city but i do or the 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 bridge but i do remember it being a really meaningful moment to every time prior using a train or a car to get between the two but once you like crack that barrier and are able to physically move between the two islands it was an eye-opener in some way you know it's funny that you say that because i think my first experience going over the williamsburg bridge not in a car or a train was when i like i was living in the city and i bought a bicycle off craigslist and it was this like old it was pink so good for the pink bridge but it was pink and it was like a cruiser and I'm like I wasn't a good bicyclist to begin with and it was like this old creaky cruiser and I like brought it back over the Williamsburg bridge and it was like the worst experience I ever had <laughs> and I was like that bridge sucks like it's so steep and like oh, I hate man. biking like, like really like ruined so many things for so many years like I don't think I went over the Williamsburg bridge at all for maybe five years after that. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I love it for that reason. <laughs> because when you're biking back from Manhattan, it's so steep and it's so dangerous. Yeah. Because you've got people walking up and yeah. you've got biker, like for me, there's always some biker faster trying uh -huh. to pass me. And it's just like, and then suddenly like it dead ends, like right at those pier, like the two like Where you have piers to, like, at yeah. the end. Yeah. And you kind of have to like turn left. It's like completely dangerous, but it's right. really fun. Right. Especially on a heavy bike, like a, like a city, a city, I, city bike, bike or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, speaking of biking over, when I was researching again for all of this, I watched a video of someone from Transportation Alternatives, which relates to, we talked to Bahij last week, who's a biker and does a lot with Transportation Alternatives, but it was right before when they announced that the L train was going to get shut down, which was maybe four years ago or something. Um, there was a period of time between when they announced and it was actually happening where there was a lot of 
talk about how are people from Williamsburg going to get into the city. And there was this guy, I forget his name right now, but he did what's called Everesting, which I had never heard of before. But it's where bikers will go somewhere that's not Everest, but they'll bike the height of Everest all in one. So he, like, as a, as like trying to raise awareness for needing better pedestrian travel to get into the city, he Everested the Williamsburg Bridge and it took him like 26 hours and he did it straight through just on Red Bull, bananas and, and nuts or something. (laughs) (laughs) But do you understand what I mean? Like, yes. Yeah. Because there's a certain elevation, like he had to do it Oh wow. 265 times yeah. or something. And yeah, it was just, they interviewed him at like hour 24 and he was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> like it's very important. They're like trying to ask him, like, why are you doing this? What's the, he's like trying to give like a really good answer, but he's like been awake for 24 hours biking back and forth. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, yeah, if you could like, I guess I would recommend watching that video, but I also just thought it was, yet again like another thing that using that bridge as a way to bring attention to something um and i think probably him doing that did make more like the bike lanes are much better now like the area right off of the bridge on either side i think are a lot better than they had been before yeah yeah well we've filled an hour and a half with scintillating bridge talk. (laughs) I really appreciate the ability to talk about these three. They're really, all three of them are really like special to me in their own way. And I really appreciate that you were able to come on and talk with us about it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this was great. All right. Well, that was our conversation with Laura about the three bridges that lead from Brooklyn into Manhattan and back again. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having it, speaking it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed having the conversation is what I'm trying to say. And as always, if you have anything that you want to say about this podcast, you can write it in the comments below or you can reach out to us if you have any thoughts on what we're doing or if you want to say anything at all if you want to share this with people we would love to have it shared around and thanks for listening yep until next week take care for now bye bye